All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode 128. Wayne McCroy is back with Jason and I. Jason's on the West Coast doing a remote show here, and we're going to cover the idea of aliens and UFOs one last time. Wayne has put together a great timeline, which utilizes a very important concept everyone should understand called the Overton Window. If you've never heard of it, look it up online. In our view, modern ufology, which we've shown the documentation, was pretty much claimed by Tavistock as social engineering, but it employs the Overton window, in our view. And after all, when you look at the evidence that people put forward for aliens, most of it is just hearsay based on nothing wrapped in a mystery which will never resolve itself. And then you get into these Freudian concepts, like for some reasons the gray aliens are fascinated with the human rectum. These are Freudian things tying these kind of perverse architects into the whole thing to wrap a human mind up in fantasy. But the main thing from my point of view about ufology is it pulls the human mind away from the only thing that we know that is, and that is nature. That is our world. When we talk about these extraterrestrial unknown things that are wrapped in mystery, there's something else. There's something that make you little. You can be abducted and all these other fairy tales that go into the whole archetype of the alien idea, but at the base of it, they're pulling you away from the one thing that we know exists, and that is nature. And if you think about this on an esoteric level, I think you'll see the value in what I'm pointing at. But anyhow, let's jump into episode 128 with Wayne McCroy and Jason Lindgren. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 128. Jason's on the road in California right now, and we have Wayne McCroy. Jason's here, but he's on the West Coast, and we have Wayne McCroy. We're going to talk a little bit about modern ufology. Um, you know, recently so many people online are coming back again with the whole that's an alien in the sky um so i figured i would offer this out one more time logically we can work out that modern ufology is a product of the tavistock institute they even claim it it's even documented but common sense and logic applied to the things we're going to cover can let anyone who wants to at least have a new way of looking at things um anyhow welcome jason Good afternoon from lovely Santa Barbara, California, my last show on the road. Wish I was there, and uh, also welcome, Wayne. Thanks for having me back on, Crow. Hey, thanks for coming on short notice. With Jason traveling, we've had to scramble because he's going to be here to begin principal filming on Shoot the Moon as well. So a lot of travel and a lot of shows that we got to get out in the meantime. Anyhow, gentlemen, uh, I'll just kick it to you, Jason. Where would you like to start this timeline? All right, so since we're going to talk about the whole UFO thing... Let's start it off with when flying saucers was a phrase that was coined. And that was with Kenneth Arnold on June 24th, 1947. And I know Wayne's got some info on this. So, Wayne, let's have it. All right. Well, uh, it all started with the uh, the advent of the term flying saucers with Kenneth Arnold in uh, June of 1947. And uh, this guy, he was a pilot. He was also... Uh, a well-known uh, salesman for fire equipment and stuff in the area uh, out uh, around the Mount Rainier area is where he was uh, doing his flying. And actually, while he was out flying that day when he had this, this sighting, he was searching for uh, a downed uh, military craft that supposedly had 32 crew members on it. And, uh, you know, if you want to look at the number 32 there, you know, these same numbers keep popping up over and over again in a lot of these uh, different stories. So, uh if you want to take a look at that and take that apart, just on the number based on the number thirty-two, that's what he was looking for. Is thirty-two people that were supposedly the plane had crashed there like a month earlier or something. So he was searching Mount Rainier 
for the wreckage of this plane. And that's when he had this this sighting. So the the numbers game, huh? He's looking for 32, and of course, uh, he's coining the word flying saucers, which they're going to need in a couple weeks at the 33rd parallel. So wait a minute, we're going from 32 to 33 here. Um, but what do we know about this guy? Is there any chance, Wayne, that this guy might have been counterintelligence or CIA or Lord knows? I do recall reading something to that effect uh, in the past that uh, he was actually... Uh, a counterintelligence agent for, I believe it was the Army Air Force at the time. I can't find anything about that online now. Once again, the uh, the powers that be are playing their little games of making things disappear off the internet. Well, that would make perfect sense, wouldn't it? Um, because by the time we get over to the Roswell nonsense, just off the 33rd parallel, um, it's going to be the similar group uh, pushing, pushing the agenda along. So, for all intents and purposes, Wayne, would you say that Kenneth Arnold is really the launch of the counterintelligence idea that UFOs are invading Earth back here in 47. Certainly would. I mean, if you actually take a look at the timeline, uh, right about that time is when uh, the Central Intelligence Agency really took hold. I believe it was formed as the OSS first, the uh, Office of Strategic Services, and then it morphed into the CIA. And it was right around the same time frame that uh, Truman started putting the intelligence agencies into power. <laughs> well, anyone who wants to look up the OSS can just go watch the $6 million man where, where it's well documented, right? That's a pun. But um, so we're back here in June of, of 47, and Kenneth Arnold coins the term flying saucers as he's looking for his 32 toothpicks like Rain Man on the ground. Uh, I'm being facetious here. But I think the main takeaway from this bullet point is they're coining a term they're going to need in just a couple of weeks, right? Absolutely. And I think it's only a matter of about two, two and a half weeks when that uh, whole Roswell incident takes place. So do you want to creep up to Roswell? Do you want to add anything in the middle or where would you like to go post Kenneth Arnold? Uh, well, there's a little bit more about Kenneth Arnold we could look at. He was also involved in another UFO incident that happened earlier uh, called the Mari Island incident. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that one. I haven't. Okay, that one, supposedly what happened is there was a fisherman and his son and his dog were out on the water on a boat, and they saw this uh, this strange craft overhead, and it supposedly dripped some kind of metallic, uh, oh, yeah. uh, molten metallic metal onto the deck of the ship and killed the guy's dog and, and caused a big uproar. So uh, this, this was later uh, determined to be a hoax, but Kenneth and Var Arnold had some involvement in that case as well. So that, that kind of lends a little bit of credibility to the fact that he may have been working with counterintelligence at the time. All right. So for everyone out there who just likes to sit back, smoke a little crack in front of the TV, I, I actually, Wayne, I do remember that incident. There are still shows on television in the modern era pushing the event uh, that I do actually remember now that Wayne's described it um, as part of their believable timeline into ufology. And again, we're tying Kenneth Arnold um, to this nonsense that is later said to be a hoax. Um, do you want to jump in here at all, Jason? Yeah, I have a couple things to add in, actually. You are correct that the OSS was the Office of Strategic Services during World War II, and then the CIA was formed shortly after World War II. That is totally correct. Also, I really want to point out once again how Google is skewing searches, because Wayne and I had spoken yesterday 
about the Kenneth Arnold article he was saying he had found earlier and couldn't find anymore, I did a search on DuckDuckGo and Alakazam, it came right up. Yeah, it goes to show you, man, you're making a valid point here, Jason. Um, you know, as, as, as people who listen very often know, I do most of my research through books these days, but right now I have DuckDuckGo loaded as my search engine of choice. doesn't always get me where I'm going, but let me tell you something. The search returns are always, well, nearly always different than if you go back to the, the monster called Google. And to back up what Wayne was saying in that article, and of course, I don't know how accurate it is, but it did have a, quite a bit of discussion on all these mysterious characters that Kenneth Arnold was interacting with who seemed to have intelligence ties. And there's also mystery money floating around of how he could stay at fancy hotels and do all this traveling and things like that. So Kenneth Arnold seems to be yet another one, one of these figures that just has a lot more going on than he should for who he is supposed to be. Well, you know, a tuned in person who understands the, uh, whatever the incident that Wayne just described, where supposedly a UFO dropped molten metal on some guy's boat and killed his dog later shown to be a hoax. And you can tie Kenneth Arnold to it. So there's a hoax and there's Kenneth Arnold. So what do you do? I mean, what do you do? What does a logical mind do? It's like the beginning of X-Files. Do you want to believe? If you want to believe, we already know you're going to be all about the alien aspect of this. If you want to be common sense, you're going to understand the picture that's being painted here. Um, and that's a little blunt, but come on, man. We're, we need to get past these fairy tales. All right. So, of course, this is considered the beginning of what would be the modern UFO era, because the next thing we have is the Roswell incident. And Wayne, I'm just going to throw that to you, because I'm sure you have a lot to say about that. Oh, definitely. The Roswell incident. This thing has been through so many revisions and changes. And actually, when it actually supposedly happened in 1947, it really wasn't all that big of a deal. It was just a major headline that went out over the news wires for 24 hours before uh, it got retracted the next day. And then it was forgotten about until Stanton Freeman came out decades later and uh, put out his famous book about it. And ever since then, the, uh, the mythology that surrounds it has grown like exponentially. So uh, there's really nothing substantial, like evidence-wise, that could come from that. The only thing that was evidence that something actually happened there was confiscated by the U.S. military and has since disappeared, and nobody seems to know where it went. So what good is that? Well, this ties in closely with the work Jason and I have done on Tavistock. By Tavistock's own words, they said the hardest generation to program would basically be the people back in the 40s. For most of us listening, that would be our grandparents, possibly great-grandparents, but for most of us, probably grandparents. Um, and the reason they cited that this generation would be so difficult to start programming is because they hadn't been exposed to television their whole life. So, Wayne, what you're pointing out is this incident happens to what's called the greatest generation, or from the Tavistock stock point of view, the generation that's going to be the hardest to program, and then they retract the story the next day and hold on to it to the 70s till we're all very programmed via television and other methods, and they re-release the, the, the whole story through Stanton Friedman, who, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll jump forward a little bit. Of course, he's... Uh, uh, help me out, Jason. What's the title I'm looking for? He was a nuclear physicist. There you go. Nuclear physicist. So people will follow us. If you don't accept nukes, that tells you something about Mr. Friedman as well. Anyhow, back over to you. So 
let's just talk about for a moment what do we actually know about ufos what has been established and wayne if you want to go through these one at a time you put a few points out here for us they of course have been around through recorded history they've been associated with disasters and wars and the kind of real world phenomena that we've had reported in more recent history would be things like unexplained lights nuts and bolt aircrafts which are probably top secret military stuff um, and they violate commonly accepted laws of physics. And some have even been reported to be seen with occupants through little windows and things. But go ahead and break that down however you like, and let's hear what you got to say about it. All right. Well, it's it's well established that uh, people have been seeing things in the sky that they don't understand for all of recorded history. And who's to say? Maybe there there is something there or something to it, but uh, there's nothing really from the ancient past that we could look at as actual physical evidence of, of any such thing really existing. And uh, secondly, a lot of these things have always been associated with, uh, with wars or disasters, like, like it, throughout the recorded timeline. Uh, when people have seen these things shortly thereafter, something major happens, a war, a natural disaster, something of that sort, like a, an earthquake, a flood. People see these things before things like that. And that, that's been a common theme throughout the historical recording of, of these things. So uh, whether there's something supernatural at play there or not, who could say? Or whether it's just a natural phenomena of some sort that puts a, a little tell out there in the ether that something big is going to happen, who could say? But uh, as far as it being extraterrestrials from outer space, I honestly, I'm yet to see anything that would back that up in any way whatsoever, even in the modern day. Well, let's throw this to Crow, since he has done so many hours of telescope footage and recorded a bunch of stuff. What would you say, based off of what we just discussed, Crow, that you could put that against what you have captured? Right. I doubt if you're going to meet too many people who have filmed as many things that would classify as UFOs as I have, much of it through a telescope, all of it through at least a very good camera system. Um, and here's the problem. When you film things, if you just want to make the claim that those are UFOs, then you're just blowing smoke. Occam's razor dictates, and it's, you know, you can't poke hole in logical things like Occam's razor, not easily anyhow, um, that what could this thing be that I'm looking at? Well, the common sense, no-nonsense approach would be, I live here in the world, I know that men and live it, women live here in the world, so probably almost certainly what I'm looking at was made by men and women. That is the, the no-nonsense common approach. But you also mentioned things like the old Vimana thing, ancient aliens and that whole fairy tale setup um, on television loves to go back to the Vimanas. I will point out, first of all, to even talk about Vimanas, you've had translations go on there. In other words, what you're being told did not come from the original language it was written in and from past episodes like the R.H. Factor and um, Hanuman, the, the supposed monkey god that Jason and I have done, tells you flat out that in, in Indians' own words from, from India, the, the country of India, they state flat out for some reason they have no real written history. How can that be? So you can see the manipulation that's going to go on anytime you're going to try to use a historical count like Vamana's. Well, how are you doing it? It's not evidence of any kind. You're taking hearsay from another language, apparently, that's been translated through Lord knows how many other languages up to a frickin' TV, for crying out loud, to try to make the case that, you know, aliens are here. But to get back to the point, Jason, I filmed a lot of weird things in the sky. Um, the, the most... 
there's a couple that are really mind-blowing. If we set the lunar wave aside, um, there's two pieces of footage that pop right out. One is the vortex um, that my wife filmed that was only visible in full spectrum. We had two cameras, a visual spec and a full spec on it. Only the full spec could see it. And the other thing would be the shooting orb, which was sought, shot in broad daylight in chemtrails. We could see these little orbs with our naked eyes. Quite often when we were filming in the daytime, we didn't know till we went through the footage later that we'd filmed what's called orbs. Um, this day, we knew damn well we were doing it. As a matter of fact, my wife was saying, go get the scope. I was so worried I would miss the whole thing that I just stood there with the camera. Um, I almost wish I would have listened to her, but it's hard to know whether I would have gotten everything together in time to do it. Point is, the shooting orb is about the most bizarre footage you're ever going to see. It's this little glowing orb that floats straight down as chemtrails are being blown by the wind to the south. It then angles slightly north, drops into the chemtrails, then goes against the wind to the north, and it fires off two little plasma-like looking shots, for lack of better description. Now, a lot of people will look at that and try to make the claim it's a UFO, and, and truly, it is hard to classify what that could be. But the real truth is, is if we think about this logically, we know the chemtrails are being set down by people. Those planes up there spraying those trails are being put there by men and women. So it follows with logical reasoning that whatever that technology is that I filmed was also put there by men and women. And you have to have some strong damn evidence to say anything more than that. That's where I'm coming from, Jason. And everything you filmed, as far as any of us can really tell they were in the atmosphere would you say that's absolutely true right you can go back and um i i hadn't realized that i'd forgotten there's there's a rebuttal clip i did to the huffington post when they claimed i didn't know what i was shooting and clearly this black object that huffington post covered um they got an fbi expert and the head of mufon i'm not sure what an fbi expert knows anything about space but that's who they got to say crow doesn't know what he's filming this is clearly a satellite and half geosynchronous orbit to refresh memories, the claim, the mainstream claim, is that at 22,000 miles, I think it is, I don't know if I got the numbers right, an object in space would be stationary over the same part of the world. Half of that would be 11,000 miles. That was their claim. And so what I did is I went and got an optical, a, a scope expert, optics expert, and we did the math. And what we demonstrated was that every single thing I had ever shot had to be in our atmosphere. As a matter of fact, if it, we even did the math to calculate out if it had been at 11,000 miles away from me, it would have been six or 700 feet long. So um, you want to talk about a 700-foot-long satellite, you got some splaining to do. I mean, we're, we're told there's an ISS, which I don't accept, but we're also told to get something up there that size that it was taken piece by piece by piece by piece. Anyhow, you get where I'm going here. So let me get this straight, because I want to be very clear about this point. You actually went and did some hardcore research and number crunching instead of just dismissing out of hand like a common mainstream person would do? Well, when you're faced with the head of MUFON, don, 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 and a FBI expert, don, 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 you probably need to throw out something that's not easily dismissed. So, yeah, you can go back on my YouTube channel and see my rebuttal to the Huffington Post, and the math utilized is even displayed there. And it's not just random. 
We used the exact math for the exact sensor of the camera I was using. We calculated for stills and video because the numbers would differ. Uh, stills are a higher resolution than video. We calculated that. Then we calculated it to the 8-inch scope I was using. We later did it with my improved system with my 11-inch scope, my 36-megapixel camera. So, yeah, I did that. So you brought up ancient aliens earlier, and Wayne, let's throw this back to you. Let's talk a little bit about that, because they, of course, do go into incidents that's supposed to have happened a long time ago, and, uh, well, take it away. All right, well, just going back to the whole Vimana concept, uh, when you start to look at this, uh, the way that they've pushed these Vimanas as being like ancient alien craft or whatever, uh, that all ties back to one individual in particular, and his name is Zechariah Sitchin. Have you guys heard of Zechariah Sitchin? Yes, I'd like to add poppycock into the conversation for the record, please. (laughs) (laughs) Well, supposedly this guy is one of the few scholars in the world that could translate uh, some of these ancient languages that had written about these Vimanas, and that's where a lot of this comes from. So because, you know, he's the only guy that could translate it, well, then, you know, you just got to take his word for it. So can I interrupt real quick here? So let me get this straight. We have things like supposed ancient Egyptian where endless people are going to university to learn how to be Egyptologists because of all this ancient Egyptian. But Zachariah Sitchin discovered the whole history of the whole galaxy or the solar system because he was one of the hundred people on our world that could read what's it called cuneiform or or however you pronounce it i would point out that if there was such an amazing story being told in this supposed cuneiform that there would be an endless line of people at university learning how to deal with it and by the way there's sites like zach zacharias hitchin was wrong or lied.com that point out quite logically the fallacy that is sitchin and i have a leg to stand on here because i read 12 of his books um and it helped me come to a realization about what's what. So there's all that. I think it's SitchinIsWrong.com, and that professor tears apart his translations and blatantly says that it's all mistranslations. Yeah, good on him. Yeah. <laughs> but Wayne, why don't you uh, tell us what you know about Sitchin, like what's really going on with him behind the scenes, had been going on with him, and uh, about what it is that he proposes. Well, he basically proposes the whole uh, ancient aliens theory which television so readily puts out now i mean how long has that show been on air now it's been on for quite a few years and uh it pushes a lot of this stuff it's claiming you know aliens help build the pyramids and just all kinds of nonsense like that that they're not done yet zero evidence of no they're not done yet they're still (laughs) coming around man wherever there's a drooling tv audience they will be there Yeah, and some of those shows, in their defense, they are entertaining. I have watched quite a few of them, uh, just because the the host on there, his name's uh, Giorgio Sukalos. He's he, he's kind of a person, like a he's got a good personality, and he's got that wild hair and stuff. <laughs> yes, he does. The guy's become a meme now. It just goes to show, you know, the social engineering aspect of this whole thing that's going on. I mean, when when your show's host is a, a popular meme on the internet, that that just says something right there. That's got social engineering written all over it. Well, there's there's one thing that Ancient Aliens has going for it that cannot be denied, and I think you guys will agree. It's the cinematography, man. They have such great shots of places all over the world, and that's a big part of the hook, isn't it? Yipper, and big budgets to go with it, so... They can make it look fantastic. (laughs) 
Well, we, we live in an era where if you really want to get a message across, you got to have something that's shiny. And these companies know that. And then if they want to deliver that message, they got to make it nice and shiny for everybody. Well, it never ceases to amaze me that the main underlying message of ancient aliens is that human beings can't do a damn thing. You know, if, if you break it down to brass tacks, that's basically what they're trying to convince you. I see another social engineering agenda within a social engineering agenda with that then. Right, exactly. Yeah, you suck. Aliens did everything. <laughs> People can't Pretty do much. a damn thing, yep. <laughs> all right, Wayne. So who else is tied in with all of this ancient aliens? And what all do they propose? Like, let's start walking back through time. But because uh, you've got quite a few things on here, and, and I want to hear your take on them. Okay, well, basically, another popular writer that uh, the whole Ancient Aliens show looks at all the time is Eric Von Doniken. Now, this is another one very similar to Zechariah Sitchin in a lot of his writings. He wrote one called Chariots of the Gods uh, that was a real big uh, bestseller back in, I believe it was the 70s, or maybe it, it was, was even the late 60s. Yeah, I, I think it was the 70s. I could be wrong. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm trying to think back, but uh, he is one of the main ones, the first ones that proposed this whole ancient aliens theory. And uh, I do believe, if I'm not mistaken, he has uh, some ties to uh, secret societies like the Masons. And I know that sounds like a shocker, guys, but, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. That never happens, Wayne. What are you talking about? Yeah, I looked it up at 68 just to get it on the record. 68. I knew it was late 60s, early 70s, somewhere around that time frame. It showed up on my kitchen table in about 73 or 4, if I remember back correctly. Yeah, it's been a long time since I read a lot of this stuff or, or looked at a lot of the different information with this. This is actually a line of research I started doing early on in my you know, awakening process because I did have a UFO experience of my own. So uh, that kind of sent me searching to find answers. And uh, I looked at a lot of this stuff, and lo and behold, every time I dig a little deeper, I find major inconsistencies with the stories and just nothing that could that proves anything it's just another mystery to to grab your mind and pull it away right so mysteries just to reiterate in the modern era when i hear the word mystery i hear the words bs in the back of my mind because they're built on next to nothing and they never resolve but von daniken has his own ufo disneyland doesn't he but i would point out you know there's probably a lot of people listening that are going to get upset because we're poo-pooing the work of these people and i'm not going to make an apology here but i will point out a lot of what you're looking at here is based on this looks like this, so it is this. Period. That's what a lot of this is based on. And if you look at any of this, chariots of the gods or anything Sitchin did, and you do not try to turn around and poke holes in it, then what you're basically doing is accepting a thing without investigation. And I don't need to point out what that is, but do you know anything about the Eric Von Daniken Disneyland, Wayne? No, I'm not familiar with that. I, did, I had no idea there was even such a thing. Well, he built his own little theme park, um, which goes to show you how much money has been generated from all this. Matter of fact, I think Chariots of the Gods, I should have looked that up. It's been translated into many, many languages. But he's got his own little UFO theme park thing going on, the miniature UFO Disneyland. Anyhow, anyone could look that up. That's crazy. <laughs> Wayne, let's go into some of these other ones that you have uh, jotted down here for us. It's like the Vamanas, Ezekiel's Wheel. Go ahead, take it away. Oh, yeah. Another one that they popularly uh, point at in a lot of these different materials here is uh, the, the wheel seen by Ezekiel, his vision of the wheel. Uh, they try to describe that as actually being 
some kind of a spacecraft. And they've gone so far as to even put on TV, like they, they designed a model of what they thought it would look like. And it's kind of this goofy looking uh, spinning top shaped thing with legs and ceiling fan blades around the legs. And it just looks bizarre. But that's what they claim that Ezekiel saw. And anybody who knows anything about the esoteric knows that that's not what's being described in the book Thank of Ezekiel. Thank you. Thank you. I was hoping you were going to say it. It's a bit like uh, Sukulos's little gold flying saucer pin there, right? Look, these Indians had this pin, so there's UFOs. But anyhow, thank you for saying that. Clearly, Ezekiel's wheel is an esoteric encoding, and we don't have time to get into that, I don't think. No, that's a whole entire show on its own, so <laughs> that's not something we should look at. But but rest assured, people, that is not a description of a, a flying saucer craft landing. All right, how about the next one? Alexander the Great's Shield in the Sky. Wait, is that a Journey song? Yeah, Shield in the Sky <laughs> keeps on turning. Of course it is. It keeps on turning. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's another one that they, they cite a lot of the time. They say Alexander the Great, in one of his battle campaigns, there was this big bronze-colored uh, shield-shaped thing in the sky, and uh, it was uh, what they considered a, an omen of his success. And that's basically all I remember about that story. But it's it's written down. I can't remember the exact source of where it's written. It might be another one of those things that's that's cited a lot of times by, uh, uh, like, say, Von Donneken or, or Sitchin. Yeah, part, part, part of the legend of a great name and no basis for proof of anything. Um, there's all kinds of stuff that came from that. You know, I recently was reading something. I hope I get this right. I think I recently read that Alexander was made emperor in York, of all places. Hint, hint, hint. Anyhow. Go figure. <laughs> yeah, go figure, exactly. How about Christopher Columbus's encounter? Yeah, Christopher Columbus, supposedly uh, on his historic voyage to America, had encountered uh, what they call a USO, an unidentified submerged object that flew up out of the water into the sky. Now, this was actually recorded in his diary, and uh, like his, his ship log, but it's only uh, one sentence in the, in the, the ship <laughs> log. So whether it's a mistranslation or, you know, what the deal is, who could say for sure? But once again, I mean, you're talking, there's nothing concrete there. It's just a written sentence. And let, let me ask this. Did Christopher Columbus write in his diary that he didn't discover America? I guess I could ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I suppose not. I mean, history is a lie agreed upon. So exactly, you know, if, this, yeah. if this guy was right in some of the history, who knows what kind of lies he agreed upon? Very true, because we were speaking about aristocracy here, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely, all the time. All right, what's this last one? I'm not too familiar with. April fourteenth, fifteen sixty one, Nuremberg, Germany, the battle in the sky. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, this is another famous one, and this one actually has a lot of witness testimony. Uh, there were hundreds of people that had reportedly seen this, and uh, this was something that actually is quite famous. Uh, there's actually a woodcut done of this that shows all these different disc-shaped objects in the sky, and people saw, like, literally dozens of these things at, supposedly fighting in the sky, and uh, it was recorded, I believe, in uh, by some of the, the scribes at the time, they, they had written the accounts of this, that many hundreds of people had witnessed this in, in Nuremberg. And this happened in 1561, and uh, it's celebrated through uh, this uh, famous woodcut that was made about it. But honestly, the shapes that you look at on the woodcut, you, you really can't tell anything 
much about it. It could uh, it could be just that maybe it was interpreted that uh, these are moons or something in the sky or, or suns, luminaries. It was just a lot of lights in the sky from what the descriptions were that they La- saw. Yeah, you know, clearly this is top-notch evidence because I believe it made more than one newspaper of the time. And as you pointed out, someone had the fortitude to click off a high-resolution woodcut joke um but anyone can look up the woodcut from nuremberg germany you tell me what that woodcut is showing anyone anyhow wayne yeah and once again that's another one of those things where uh there might be some different esoteric information being communicated through this woodcut that has absolutely nothing to do with ufos exactly it's just the the interpretation that uh, some of these uh, ufo researchers want to put on it I'm with you all day long there, Wayne. I think it's important to point out here that if something made a woodcut or a pressing or something like that, in the past, it wouldn't have been so easy for a commoner to get anything recorded. Would you agree with that, gentlemen? Of course. And not only that, it took a skilled craftsman to do the woodcut, and it took someone who was certainly a craftsman to do the printing. And if I remember correctly, uh, that woodcut is claimed to have shown up, I don't know if you call it a newspaper all the way back then, but in whatever the the printed medium to put news around was called in the day, I think it was, it was done in more than one city is the claim. I would have to go back to be certain, but I'm reasonably sure um, that woodcut was used to pass out some kind of a leaflet of some sort. Yeah, but clearly making a woodcut's not like taking a picture, right? It takes a while to create that. Well, the implication here would be that some sort of authority figure would have had to have been involved with anything like this being recorded when you're talking right. about hundreds of years ago. The so church. who knows? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, it would be the church. You, you weren't, uh, according to the history, um, acceptable or unacceptable that we're handed now, the ultimate arbiter of communication at that level would have been the church, period. And that tells us all something too, right? Definitely, definitely. All right, Wayne, so moving along to something a little more tangible, you have down here that the first known photo of a UFO was taken at Mount Washington, New Hampshire in the year 1871. Let's talk about that. Yeah, basically, it's it's an old black and white photo. You could look it up online. You can't really tell an awful lot from the picture because it is very grainy, but it looks to be like a cigar-shaped thing in the clouds there that was snapped by this photo. So who could say for sure what this is? There are two separate shots of it that were taken. So it's hard to say for sure if it's really much of anything because of you know <laughs> the resolution of the cameras back then, the black and white film. It's one of those things that's, that's really hard to determine what this is, or, or is it uh, just a, a smudge on the film or, or something of the sort, like a, a scratch in the, the film. How many megapixels was it? <laughs> I don't even know if it was even a pixel at that point. <laughs> it was silver nitrate. Or whatever, I, make a pixel. I'm, I'm actually looking at it right now, guys, and I think Occam's razor would dictate that the dude threw a cigar up in the air. No, it almost looks like a like a, a scratch on the photographic plate to me. To be honest with you, it's not evidence of anything. I can tell you that. Right. It's it's one step up from a high resolution woodcut. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, how about this next one? The Skyship UFO from the 1880s and 1890s. Right, there was, uh, back in the 1880s and 1890s, the Old West, there was this huge UFO flap going on at the time. Of course, they didn't call them UFOs at that point. They called them mystery airships. Uh, People were seeing these airships all over uh, the United States, and especially in the Southwest at the time. 
And uh, what people describe these as, and this is interesting, because if you actually go back and look at the research of uh, certain of these people that looked at these topics, like John Keel or Jacques Vallée, they describe these things that these were more airships. This was something more akin to, say, a blimp or, or a zeppelin or something along those lines that the people were reporting seeing. And a lot of them actually reported seeing crew members and, and speaking to crew members on them, which were, you know, just normal human people. So uh, this was going on a lot during that time. And uh, it was a big deal back then. There were always these stories in local newspapers from all over about these different airships. It was like really a huge phenomenon at the time. But the interesting part about that is that these airships kind of had some of the same aspects to them, like our modern day, what we describe as UFO encounters have. Uh, it's the same kind of deal. This thing just suddenly, silently appears almost out of nowhere. People sometimes have a conversation or, or see strange items on the occupants of these craft, like they have different tools and stuff that the people don't recognize, the people of the time. And, and just different things like that. So it kind of takes on more of a 40 and type of a, a research view, more so than a UFO one. But uh, your ufologists of today kind of lump these all together with UFOs. And then you get things like the movie Cowboys and Aliens. Do you remember exactly. that movie from a few years back? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, I would just add here, Wayne, if a person wants to be reasonable and use common sense and you take these supposed reportings at face value wouldn't a reasonable person say when was helium discovered well i'm a reasonable person it was discovered in 1868 for that matter wouldn't you begin to think about uh when was it the first time anyone realized that hot air rises um things like these and you know this 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 would, could break off into a whole other discussion about when we actually put the first balloons up and stuff. But even if someone someone listening wants to have an interesting ride, go look up the first reported uh, mainstream history account of hot air balloons. But again, we're looking at hearsay, aren't we? Um, there's nothing solid that could be called evidence here. All right, once again, and that's basically what you encounter with a lot of this stuff. Uh, and one of the most famous cases of this uh, was actually in Aurora, Texas in 1897. If you've watched any of the UFO shows, they, they make a big deal about this. Jim Mars, I think, did a big thing on it. This is the one where uh, supposedly this, this spacecraft, or whatever it was, it was a cigar-shaped aircraft, crashed into uh, a windmill and knocked the windmill over on a farm in Aurora, Texas, and supposedly they recovered the body of the pilot of this thing, and it was a little three-and-a-half-foot-tall humanoid guy that didn't look human, and they supposedly buried him in the local cemetery there, which, uh, here's, here's a, a little uh, bit of a, a news flash and a, a, <laughs> a spoiler alert here. Uh, the, the body of this uh, supposed alien that was buried in the cemetery disappears from the cemetery years later when uh, they go looking for it. <laughs> well, I haven't followed Jim Mars, but I have read extensively Johnny Jupiter's coverage of this event. Um, sorry for being facetious. Um, you've seen this all over the TV programs and everything else to the point where you wonder when, if this is just simply manufactured nonsense, because by the time you start to take it apart, it's like you say, well, there's a body here. Oh, guess what? The body's gone. It's just another one of these mysteries that will never resolve and is based on nebulous information at best 
right? And here's the little uh, kicker part of all of this. If you look at uh, the timeline here, that's why we're going through this like on the timeline. You'll notice this stuff starts to come about mid to late 1800s, which is also the uh, rise point of the eugenics movement and the whole evolution theory. So uh, I would propose that a lot of this is just a social engineering concept to push these ideas into the mainstream. Well, I would point out, you know, I'm not a young person anymore, but in my lifetime, the perception at one point was is that the whole flying saucer UFO idea really came to the forefront through Hollywood sci-fi in the 50s. Um, but now up here in the information age, of course, it's been pushed back. And as you pointed out, of course, Hollywood has turned us all into all such cinematic classics as Cowboys and Aliens. Yeah, yeah the cinematic masterpiece that it was. <laughs> right. Yep. Let's also not forget that the late 1800s is when the huge movement with occultism and spiritualism and all that started to kick off, too. So, of course, these things can kind of crisscross, can't they? Of course. And that brings us to our next point on the roster here. Aleister Crowley and his uh, encounter with what he called, uh, I guess he referred to it as a, a demon named Lom. And uh, he drew a picture of this that's actually very famous if you want to go look it up online. And wouldn't you know, it looks exactly like a little gray alien. Big surprise. And I have seen this, and you are totally correct. It's got the big roundish head, hairless, no ears, the, the black eyes, the little tiny little dots for nose. It's, it's a gray. It's a very crude drawing of a gray. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. Anyone can do a quick Google search for Lom and Aleister Crowley, and you'll see a typical or some version of what a gray might be. But Jason, correct me if I'm wrong. Do I remember way back when we began to endeavor to show that H.G. Wells may have been the person that invented the idea of the modern gray, or at least that's where the thread starts? Did Crowley and H.G. Wells have some connection? I just can't quite put my finger on it, Jason. Do you remember anything like that? No, uh, Crowley was kind of ostracized by the more elitist figures of the day. It wasn't until much later on that Crowley started being idolized as being this so cool hip figure. But back then, H.G. Wells, being a eugenicist and elitist mouthpiece, he, uh, he didn't do greys, but he definitely put forth the notion of alien life forms, of course. Well, we read in one of our past versions, we read his description, which fits basically the idea of a gray pretty carefully. But while we're here on Crowley, I'll go on the record once again as having said Crowley didn't add anything new into our world. He basically went around, ripped off from other um, occult sources or even religious sources. And as far as I can tell, he had no regard for human beings in general other than himself. So there's all that. So we got a couple more interesting characters here besides H.G. Wells to mention as far as uh, literature is concerned, and that's H.P. Lovecraft and Jules Verne. And all three of these folks put out very interesting concepts that are early science fiction. But Wayne, go ahead and once again, take it away. Yeah, basically, if you, you look at uh, the works of these guys, uh, there there's a lot of similarities in it, even though Lovecraft was more of a, like a horror-type genre, a genre that really didn't exist at his time. It was kind of kind of like a uh, a more thought-provoking type of horror genre. It's something that's totally lost today. It's it's something that kind of makes you think. But he goes a lot of dark places with this, and it does draw parallels to uh, some of the works of like H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. And my take on this is I think a lot of this stuff was actually just put out to put the idea of, uh, per se, an alien invasion into the minds of people. The concept of uh, being invaded by some foreign entity from a different world here on Earth. 
it was kind of uh, like a, a precursor to uh, modern fear porn, if you want my my take on it. Well, I, I think you're in the vein, and it is a little too early, I guess, to jump to 1937 and that whole Rockefeller-funded thing, which is exactly what you're stating. It wasn't just the idea of fear porn. It was provable fear porn. We'll get there in a minute. Go ahead, Jason. So the next one you have here that I'm actually not sure what is referencing, John Dewey introduces the idea of an alien invasion in a speech in 1917 that will be alluded to decades later by President Ronald Reagan. I'm not sure what that is about, so let's hear it. Okay. Uh, Back, uh, I think they were hosting some delegation from uh, Japan, if I'm not mistaken, in New York City at the time. This was in 1917. And uh, at one of the speeches, John Dewey had said something to the effect of uh, somebody once said that uh, if there was an invasion of aliens from another world that would uh, bring humanity together to unite against a, a, a common enemy. It was from this where later on, decades later, Ronald Reagan is famously known for saying the same type of thing at multiple venues, one of them being the United Nations in a famous speech. Well, this originates all the way back in 1917 with John Dewey. And if you look at John Dewey, there's social engineering written all over that guy. This Hell guy yes. had an up. There, there, this guy had an early part in the formation of uh, the education system of our country today. And he put that idea out there in the ether. And it got picked up, up upon uh, later by Ronald Reagan and uh, reiterated by Reagan. So as we go through the timeline here, you could kind of see how this effect on the human mind is coming about slowly. It's, it's a move of the Overton window towards more and more... Uh, ideas like this. It's its prepping people's minds for, say, an alien invasion. And that's kind of the direction that it goes. And it's, it's kind of lulling people into this, uh, this whole mindset of fear. I am so with you. It is, in fact, the movement over the Overton window to the right. And the fact that you pointed out the source, John Dewey, uh, who was Absolutely appears to be social engineering. And then Ronald Reagan, old Rombo, picks it up on multiple occasions. But the key occasion that I will never dismiss as unimportant is the speech at the UN he mentioned. And you guys can look this up. Go look up at Ronald Reagan's UFO mentioning aliens at the UN speech. This is, to me, almost like a possibility in your pocket. Um, as the Overton window moves, we all know what happens. You know, Jason and I just did an, uh, a show on emergencies, and we showed that no emergency goes to waste and that most of the emergencies are just made up in the first place. This would be a prime possibility in my view. Um, And you can see the idea getting primed all the way back in 1917 with Dewey. Hope I got the date right. And then being picked up later in the 80s by Ronald Reagan, even talking about it at the UN, hint, hint, hint. So is this a possible or a possibility being put forward for another fake emergency where basically life as we know it changes who knows so who was this dewey guy is this the same guy that had to do with the dewey decimal system yeah the one and the same that's how much of an impact this guy <laughs> had in the, in the early education system of america and he was a he was a roller and a player so uh, uh i actually have his exact quote here quote someone remarked that the best way to unite all the nations on this globe would be an attack from some other planet in the face of such an alien enemy, people would respond with a sense of their unity of interest and purpose. End quote. John Dewey, New York, 1917. Boom. Let me add to Dewey's quote. And they'll also be willing to give up all their freedoms for security. There. Now the, now the quote is complete. <laughs> right? 
So, Wayne, here's a big one we're about to hit on. Orson Welles and the War of the Worlds broadcast of 1937. Take it away. Okay, yeah, now this was a big one. This was actually put in this uh, whole premise put forth by John Dewey uh, two decades earlier into action. Now, uh, this, this is a famous event, the Orson Welles reading of War of the Worlds, the broadcast on the radio. How they did it is they set this up so that it sounded like it was an, a legit news story to the people at the time because they only had one little disclaimer at the very beginning for people that just tuned in at just that time saying that this, the following is, you know, a fictional, fictional interpretation of such and such. But they read it like as if it was live news coverage. And the people ate it up. In fact, uh, it's been recorded that people living in Grover's Mills, New Jersey, went out and shot up their water tower thinking it was one of these walkers. So it just goes to show you. Let's take a, a little look at how this all came about. Now, this broadcast of War of the Worlds was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation in 1937. Go figure, right? <laughs> I don't think Rockefeller would have anything to do with this, would you? Nah, he was just looking out for our best interests. Now, this broadcast was actually a psychological warfare experiment conducted by the Princeton Radio Project. They had set up uh, something called the Office of Radio Research, and this was set up, and this was headed by a director named Paul F. Lazarsfeld. Now, if you want to actually step forward a little bit in the UFO field a couple decades, look at this guy's last name, Lazarsfeld, and who was a big player in the, the 1980s in the UFO field, Bob Lazar. Right. It's amazing how these connections come together. Now, let's, let's take another look down here just a little further. The associate directors of this project were Frank Stanton. Now, where have we heard that name before? Stanton Friedman yeah. and Hadley Cantrell, and this guy had a special grant from the general education board which by the way all comes from rockefeller as well so uh, what happened is later on cantrell published the results of this study in a book titled the invasion from mars a study in the psychology of panic and uh, this book was actually sponsored by the federal radio education committee so it goes to show you that it's right out there in the open this was a psychological warfare experiment they did this to the people on purpose to see what their reaction was and test out this theory that uh, john dewey put out two decades earlier and you could see once again the moving of the overton window down now they've gone from the planning phase to an operational phase like a test phase if you will to test this out to see what the psychological impact of it would be on the people so you drew so many lines. You did it deftly. You did a fantastic job. But um, we're going to start to wrap up our one here. But let's just tie up a couple loose ends before we do. Can we draw any line from Hollywood to this basically UFO psyop that was run in 1937 over the radio? Um, can we draw any lines to Hollywood, Wayne? Well, you got to look at uh, who was the personality that was the one doing the broadcast. That would be one Orson Welles, who uh, later came to a lot of success in the film industry. So, yeah, I'd say there's definite there there. I mean, there's always a definite connection between the radio era and the film era, the motion picture era, if you will. So that's what they call it. This is about the time when the transition was starting to take place. 
Right, and to put some loose words together, Orson Welles was basically Hollywood royalty, wasn't he? He creates, later on down the road in the 40s, I believe, a little old movie called Citizen Kane, which even the title is dripping with innuendo for those people who have half a brain, and it is regularly, to this day, and has been for many decades, voted the best uh, movie of all time. But that sets aside, I'm going to take a shot here, Wayne, I don't know if you know this information, but I'm aware of at least two versions of War of the Worlds that's been in Hollywood. There's the old one that is color, don't know who did it, and then there's the newer one with Tom Cruise. Are you aware of any others? Uh, no, those are the only two that I'm familiar with. In fact, I, I used to watch uh, the old one that uh, used to was in color. It actually, they had it in black and white, too, and I've seen it more in the black and white uh, oh, than yeah. I have the color. By the way, there is a series, a television series from, I believe, the early 90s that was a continuation of that 1950s War of the Worlds movie. It's those machines, those kind of aliens, and they did two seasons, basically continuing the story. I do remember that, Jason, now that you mention it. I can't remember any of the plot lines in the TV show, though, but I remember I used to watch that because I did like that War of the Worlds movie when I was a kid. So... (laughs) All right, guys, we're going to need to wrap up hour one because we have to have an even hour for the first hour to run on some of the other places it runs. Let's suffice it to say that there's a heck of a lot more coming, and I'll even tip it a little bit. Uh, Wayne sent me a PDF yesterday entitled Project Mars, which was written by Werner von Braun in the 40s. And on page 177, you can look this up online, Mr. Werner von Braun names Elon as the governor of Mars. You can't write fiction doesn't compare to the real timelines that we're pointing out. We're going to get into these things and many more that basically show the modern ufology that most of us are familiar with is in basically social programming. And if the Orson Welles portion of this didn't convince you or any of the other things you've seen, come tune in as we start to head towards Mars in hour two. Anyhow, I'd like to remind you all that Sunday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Jason and I have a live show called Crow Triple Seven Live, and there is a live chat that is free to everyone. And the live show can be found on Truth Frequency Radio, TFR. If you go to my Twitter, Crow Triple Seven, there's a link. I hope to see you all over in the free speech zone called CrowTripleSevenRadio.com. Hope to see you there. Cheers.